fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what, in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, I want to uh, speak with you tonight about four steps to a life of real purpose. Four steps to a life of real purpose. Now, I say real purpose quite deliberately because we are living in a society in which there is a gaping vacuum of purpose. The typical routine of many people today goes something like this. Get up, go to work, come home, watch Netflix, go to bed, see friends and family at the weekend, maybe squeeze in a hobby if you're lucky. But the problem is that's not really living, is it? It's existing. We need, I would submit to you, real purpose. And yet many people today think that purpose um, is something that we create, essentially. But there's no real purpose beyond that. We have our own purpose, but there's not um, any real purpose beyond that. And yet, on some level, I think most people know that we can't thrive as human beings on self-created purpose, on purpose that we create ourselves. We discover real purpose, I want to submit to you, as we look away from ourselves to God. The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, I heard the other day, still sells uh, one million copies a month. And tellingly, the opening sentence of that book is, it's not about you. It's not about you. And talking about the ongoing relevance of that book, uh, Pastor Rick says this, that spiritual emptiness is a universal disease. Spiritual emptiness is a universal disease. So as we think about these kind of four uh, steps to a life of purpose, cards on the table, I don't believe that you and I are an accident. I believe that God created us to live in relationship with him. 
And God has given each of us a mission to complete, gifts to use, a calling to fulfill, an adventure to take with him. And in our reading tonight, Paul tells us really about the kind of the driving passion, the driving purpose of his life. And in verse 11, he says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. In other words, there is a purpose driving Paul that leads him to try to engage and inspire and persuade those around him about the truth of Christianity. And Paul tells us what that purpose is at the end of verse 19. He says, God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And here's what he's saying, really, that the most important thing that can possibly happen to you, will ever happen to you, is to be reconciled to God. And that if you're already reconciled to God through Jesus, that the most important thing you can do is help other people to get reconciled to God. It's Paul's passion for that purpose that energizes everything else that he does. So what does it mean to be reconciled? to God. What does that actually mean? I think it means this, that we all kind of say and do things that create this chasm, this, this gap between us and God. And, and it creates distance. And uh, in situations of war, people often deploy that language we were just hearing, don't they? Language of reconciliation. So when you're watching the news, looking at Israel and Palestine, Ireland and Northern Ireland, you'll hear that word reconciliation being bandied about. And it's a bit like that when we're not reconciled to God. We live and act as God's enemies, as people at war with his goodness. But out of God's amazing grace, his overflowing love, he sent his son, Jesus, who was perfect and never sinned, and that when Jesus was crucified, as it says there in verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that now everyone who cries out to Jesus, it doesn't matter how dark you are, how unworthy you feel, that everyone who cries out to Jesus receives forgiveness. But more than that, also receives as it says there in verse 18, 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. And so if you're here and exploring Christianity, I just want to lay out to you that that is God's promise that you can receive his forgiveness and new life tonight. The problem, and here's a bit of context to this passage is that in Corinth, the people Paul was writing to, the people who are listening to Paul preach this incredible message of reconciliation to God, they hear him talking about that, and they're essentially trying to discredit him, and basically saying, well, if Paul is really an apostle, if this message is really so great, then why is he so weak? Why is he so unimpressive? Why is he so unflashy? And Paul sarcastically calls the people critiquing him super apostles because of their refusal to show weakness or vulnerability. And maybe for you, you've got people around you who are like that. Maybe who don't recognize the calling that you feel you've got on your life. 
or, or the potential that you might have. It could be a difficult colleague, uh, maybe a bullying boss, maybe a tricky family member, maybe people who dismiss you because of your health struggles or because of your economic background or something else. But just listen to what Paul does. He actually turns the very things his critics are using against him, his weakness and suffering, and he says those things actually show the legitimacy of God's calling and purpose on his life. So in chapter 11, he builds up to saying, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, that is a remarkable sentence. I bet that was the last thing that his critics expected to hear, that Paul's suffering and weakness are actually part of God's purpose for his life. And we're going to see how that purpose works out for us. So, four steps to a life of real purpose. And step one is this. We fear the Lord. We fear the Lord. So he says in verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Now the fear of the Lord is this huge concept in scripture uh, in the book of Proverbs, it declares that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So you, can, you get from that how important it is. It's like you're not even beginning to tap into wisdom unless you grasp the fear of the Lord. But um, it's easy to hear that word fear and to think that Paul is saying that we need to be absolutely terrified of God. Um, but that isn't what it means when scripture uses that phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's talking about kind of an awe and a reverence, and um, a respect for God's goodness and holiness. Earlier in the chapter that Paul actually unpacks that part of the way we show fear of the Lord is by living with the reality of judgment day in our minds, the day when we'll stand before Jesus and be judged uh, by him, and that there's a way to live in light of that, and he describes that as fear of the Lord. Isaiah 66 Verse 2 captures the spirit of fear of the Lord, I think, when it says, this is God speaking. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite and who what? Tremble at my word. So why does the Apostle Paul say that fear of the Lord is kind of this first thing that energizes his purpose? So since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Paul clearly believes that the fear of the Lord is foundational to living a life of purpose. It's this fear of the Lord that causes him to reach out to his unbelieving friends and family, seeking to persuade them about the truth and the relevance of Christianity. And then Paul says, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. And I think Paul's saying there that there's something about the fear of the Lord that shines conspicuously. You can sense it, I think, when you're with someone who has fear of the Lord. It shines out of their character. And there are many of you in this church who I know who are like this. Um, in your straightforward honesty at work, in your consistent faithfulness in your marriages, in how quick you are to apologize from the heart when you get things wrong, in your passion to see Jesus glorified and honored in the world. And the fear of the Lord is like that. It is a powerful witness. And people see that purpose in your life probably more 
than you might be aware of. I also think a healthy fear of the Lord helps us to take the hits and setbacks that can sometimes come with following Jesus. Or put another way, unless we fear the Lord supremely and honor and esteem and respect him supremely, then we're going to fear something else supremely. If we care more what our friends or colleagues think about us, if we care more about being popular and being liked, if we care more about a life of ease or looking successful and together all the time, then we risk missing out on this purpose that Paul taps into in this passage. What is the first step to a life of real purpose? It's fear of the Lord. And to be honest with you, this is still something that I battle with a lot. Um, I was speaking with a friend one time, and he said to me with a big, you know, a sort of slightly disdainful smirk on his face, oh, you don't seriously believe in the resurrection, do you? And in that moment, I felt this huge pressure to fear his opinion of me more than the, the Lord. In that conversation, I was able to say, yes, you know, I really do believe in the resurrection, and there are very good reasons to think that Jesus rose from the dead. But I can think of many times when I've completely mucked it up and caved into fears of what other people will think of me more than the Lord. But where is God calling you and I to a renewed fear of the Lord tonight? Remember, this isn't about feeling terrified of God. Um, it's about awe and respect for his majesty, glory, and power. And it can manifest in all kinds of ways. It may be that the Lord you know, has um, been calling you to a new venture, a new job, a new ministry, a new house. I don't know what it is for you. And you've been saying, well, you know, when the practical details come together, maybe the money, you know, then I'll go for it. When um, I've got all of the eggs lined up and I can see every step of the way, then I'll do it. But friends, remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and sometimes there's times where we don't see what's ahead and we need to trust him and step forward anyway um when nikki and i first got married we uh I, I, we had a slight whirlwind year of me being recommended to train to be a vicar in the church of england and moving into our first house uh but we were really worried because we had no money none we literally you know we were in our early, our 20s We'd got used to just living off the clothes on our back, and we literally arrived with two big rucksacks into this big empty house to start training to be a vicar in Durham. And we thought we were really worried how are we actually going to live in a house when we have no money? And uh, literally the next day, doesn't always happen like this, but this time it did. The next day, I got a phone call to say that I'd inherited some money that would completely pay for us to furnish our house the day after we'd moved in and stepped into God's purpose for our life. And I, I nearly wept when I heard it. And I share that not to put myself on a pedestal, but just to give you an example of God's faithfulness, that when we fear him and step forward into his purpose, he always, always provides. So the first step to a life of real purpose is fear of the Lord. The second st step, though, to a life of real purpose is embracing authenticity. Embracing authenticity. So in verse 13, Paul says, if we are out of our mind, 
as some people say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. I once heard someone say that people would always rather follow a leader who is always real than always right. I think that is true both in the workplace and in the church. And Paul is so real here. He just kind of openly admits, doesn't he? Some people, because I'm preaching the gospel, assume that I must be mentally unstable. Hardly a convincing rhetorical strategy, is it, to get people on board with where you're coming from. But he just says this quite openly to the church, that I'm willing to put up with this because of the purpose God has given me to preach the gospel. He embraces authenticity, he embraces his, his weakness and suffering. Why? Because he knows God's power is magnified and made more visible when we see it operating in a broken human being like him. Back in chapter 4, he says that as Christians, we're like pot, cracked uh, pots of clay, jars of clay with precious treasure inside. And Jesus, as it were, shines out all the more beautifully and clearly through our cracks, through our scars and suffering and weakness. And I'm just so encouraged by that. See, when you hear me talking about four steps to a life of purpose, it's easy to hear that and think, well, that sounds great for some, very neat and tidy. But Matt, you need to know I really struggle. I don't have it all together. Maybe for you, it, it's a feeling of deep shame about a sin that you committed in the past. Maybe for you, it's just a real wrestle with your mental health. And kind of feeling like, you know, I'm too, God, I'm too broken for God to use me. Maybe for you it's just feeling, I'm too overwhelmed with stress to have this life in purpose uh, that, that, that you're talking about. It sounds great, but I just don't have the time or the energy. If any of you connect with that kind of response, I get that. And the Apostle Paul gets it too. Um, there's a moment later in this book where he begs Jesus to heal him of a painful physical ailment. And Jesus speaks to him and says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And all the way through to Corinthians, you see Paul embracing authenticity, embracing vulnerability, because that's where Jesus loves to be and to operate. So don't write yourself off if you feel weak. I actually think self-sufficiency is far more damaging to living a life of purpose than weakness might be. And of course, on some level, we all know this to be true, don't we? I think we all know this on some deep level. Why, for example, is a story like Harry Potter so compelling? Why is, you know, Frodo and Sam trudging through Mordor compelling? I think the reason it's compelling is because we know on some level the power of vulnerability and weakness. And in God's hands, it's a total game changer. It's, we get a secret strength and power from God that comes to us when we embrace authenticity and weakness. So the steps to a life of real purpose, we fear the Lord, that's foundational. We embrace authenticity. And third, we are 
compelled by love. So he says in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. And Paul says that he is compelled by Christ's love and that that love is what gives him the passion to fulfill God's purpose for his life. And of course, love is and always will be endlessly powerful and compelling. But what does it actually mean? What's he saying there when he says Christ's love compels us? The Greek word he uses is synecho, and it could equally be translated as control. Not a very popular word, but Christ's love controls us, compels us. In other words, this love that we receive from Jesus actually restrains us and protects us from living our own selfish agendas and releases us to live God's purpose for our lives. It's like Paul saying the love of Christ has that power. It can actually help us to overcome sinful desires and passions that take us off track. And this is so challenging for us today in a culture that tends to assume that love, if it's true, equals unconditional affirmation. People today tend to assume that I am being truly loved when I'm being unconditionally affirmed in all of the choices that I make. But God respects us far too much to simply affirm us all the time. God absolutely loves us as we are, and that is core to Christianity. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for us, but he loves us way too much to keep us as we are. You know, as he says there in verse 15, it's so clear, isn't it? He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul says Christ's love compels us, Christ's love controls us. And my question for us would be this, does Christ's love compel and control us? Uh, If, like me, you sometimes think, well, I'm not so sure, I think sometimes, inconsistently, maybe, but a lot of the time I give in to temptations and fears. But that's the whole purpose of this service, isn't it? It's why we come to worship, and we'd love to pray for you um, if if you uh, feel that. So what are the steps? We fear the Lord. We embrace authenticity. We're compelled by love. And finally, and this is such an important one, I think, from this passage, we see with God's eyes. We see with God's eyes. So verses 16 to 17, he says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. I once heard a story where um, a parishioner was walking to church and was deeply troubled to find one of the members of the worship band uh, smoking a cigarette outside the service um, before uh, the service started. And so after the service, she went up to the vicar and said, you know, I'm so sorry to tell you, but I just, I need to let you know, I saw Bob smoking a cigarette outside the service, and I think he's going to have to stop playing in the band until he reaches, you know, deep conviction and repentance. 
And the vicar just stopped and smiled and asked that one question. And it was this, what was he smoking? A cigarette, the lady said. And the vicar just said, oh, I'm so proud of him. I can just see that God is in his life growing him and helping him. And see, what this lady didn't know was that this guy, you know, was a brand new Christian who had converted to Christ out of a very sort of hedonistic and wild lifestyle and had very recently just completely given up taking drugs altogether. But it would have been so easy to judge him on appearances, wouldn't it? And I use this illustration because I think that it's teaching that a key step to going forward with God's purpose for our lives is learning to see with his eyes. So Paul says in verse 16, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view because anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. And amongst many things, it's teaching that we can't put limits on who God might save and transform. You know, we want to be a church where anybody, no matter what they've done, no matter how dark uh, their life is, no matter how confused or addicted or messed up they are, that they can come and find a home here and be transformed here and learn to discover how much God loves them. But learning to see other people with God's eyes is not automatic or straightforward. And, you know, it's tempting, isn't it, to look at someone and think, well, they're a real work in progress, aren't they? When God says, you know, actually, they're a beautiful new creation. You know, to say that, but that person's so difficult. But God says, no, they're a new creation. Regard them that way. Think of them that way. And plus, we're all difficult sometimes, aren't we? Myself included. We all resist in various ways, God's work of transformation in our lives. And yet, it's absolutely true to all of those who believe and trust in Jesus. You are a new creation. And knowing that sets us free to live with God's purpose for our lives. And for some of you, the thing holding you back as I finish is probably not how you see others, though it could be. Um, it may be how you see yourself. So many p- people today, I think, carry feelings of self-rejection, self-hatred, and shame. And sometimes that can be rooted in maybe something painful that was said to you. Um, other times it can be deep shame about something wrong that you did. But notice what Paul says. He doesn't qualify. He says, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. This is a fact of how God sees us. It's a fact of how God sees you. He loves you and he delights in you. But we do need to have a moment to be able to ask him to help us to see with his eyes, not just other people, though that's important, but also how we see ourselves as well. Because if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Can I invite you to pray with me?
Lord, we thank you for the amazing calling and purpose that you've given to each person here. And we do ask, Lord, that you would help us and renew our fear for you, our respect and our admiration and our love for you. We ask that you would help us to embrace weakness and vulnerability for the sake of your kingdom and reaching more people for Jesus. We ask that we would always be compelled and controlled by your love for us. And Lord, we do cry out to you that you would help us to see each other and to see ourselves with your eyes. And by your Holy Spirit, would you come and do it? In Jesus' name.